Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers Season 3, Part 16, Out of Town. What's going on in South Dakota, Las Vegas, uh, and with Mr. C in this episode. For the FBI in South Dakota, we see Gordon standing in the hotel room full of electronics, as I mentioned, just looking at all the machines, and it's kind of a funny little scene charged with anticipation. Probably just something that Lynch shot and wanted to include somewhere, and it offered an opportunity to break up the hospital scenes as needed in this episode. Then we see Diane receiving a message from Evil Cooper, the text message that he sends at the beginning of the episode. It's a smiley face followed by the word all. What does this mean? She has some sense of what it means because she sends him coordinates, I think different coordinates than she had sent before. She puts her phone in her bag. There's a gun in there. She goes up to the hotel room with Gordon, Albert, and Tammy. They're playing the song, the slowed down American woman that they play in Mr. C's scene in part one or two. I think it's part one, actually. And Diane comes into the room and she finally tells them what happened with Cooper that night many years ago. What happened is he came to visit her she hadn't seen him for a few years. They were catching up on things. And then they kissed and something just went wrong. In her words, like she, his, something happened to his face. And that's where the sense began. This, this isn't, this isn't the Cooper I know. And he smiled on his sister way. And then she pauses and she's sobbing. And she says that, she, that he raped her. And everyone kind of looks around. Nobody comments. She keeps talking. They're all a little nervous and on edge. She says that he brought her somewhere to a station. Then she mutters something about a sheriff's station. Finally, she she says, I'm not me. I'm not me. And she pulls out the gun. And Albert and Tammy are ready. They just fire at her, hit her. And as she's kind of writhing, she zaps up. She's whooshed out of the room. Literally, her body just disappears. So what do we make of this? What, what do we say about it? For starters, it's worth noting that there's a connection drawn between Janie E. and Diane. And also, I think, more abstractly between Diane and Audrey, uh, given what happens to both of them in this episode. It's almost like we're seeing Diane disappear from the agent's point of view, and we're seeing Audrey disappear from this world or whatever world she's in from her point of view. Um, although, of course, we do follow Diane to the Red Room after, but at first she just disappears and we see her gone. But the Janie-Diane uh, connection is, is both uh, more subtle and more direct. We're watching Janie riding around with Cooper in the car and smiling to herself and thinking, ah, oh, this, is, this is my man back from the coma, you know, taking care of business. And then we cut to Diane in the bar alone, getting a text message from Mr. C. And let's remember, Janie E. and Diane are sisters. And that's never been made, nothing much has been made of that in this series at all. So why did they do it? There's some connection being drawn there, I think, between each of them and their relationship to the Cooper in their lives. In her case, Mr. C. In Janie's case, Dougie. And what a huge contrast to draw. And it's interesting because the music actually carries over from the driving scene in Las Vegas. And it's the Twin Peaks theme. It's this uplifting it's like almost an, you know, it's always been sort of a somewhat ambivalent theme. I mean, it's called Falling, and the song is very poignant. It's beautiful, but a little ethereal, a little sad, maybe. But this version of it just seems joyful. Um, I don't know if it's, I think it's the same version of the song. I think it's just the combination of it with the events. It just feels like we're there, you know. This is this is what we've been waiting for. And that music carries over into Diane and the bar in an odd way. Like it doesn't feel like it fits and then it fades away. Actually, I think it cuts sharply 
as she receives the text. I think a lot of the most interesting material on this show has to do with the female characters, even though, and maybe partly because, the show feels kind of male-dominated in terms of number of characters and screen time, and even just the way a lot of things are represented, it doesn't have that kind of more sensitive consciousness of Firewalk with me, where it's entering into the female character's world and, and her mind and actually you know, positioning the viewer there. I think we get a little bit of that in the Diane scene, but it's a very ambivalent, uncomfortable, disorienting scene. It's also worth noting, of course, that this came out, as I've mentioned before, three months, not even, I think maybe two, maybe actually a month and a half before the Me Too scandals broke. And it just, it feels so prescient now. And not just the fact that she's telling the story about about Cooper assaulting her, but that the response of her co-workers to hearing this about their co-worker is to kill her. They set this up within the series as they give it a reason to happen. Oh, well, she's a tulpa and she's threatening them and she's pulling a gun on them. But it just psychologically on some level, uh, almost subconsciously or unconsciously, it feels like something else is going on. It feels like there's some kind of allegory being delivered here about workplace abuse and what the response to that is. I mean, even the fact that we do see her reach for the gun and then we stick with them after she disappears, I think indicates that this whole series is often telling stories about female trauma, particularly middle-aged women with trauma in their past. Audrey, Diane, Sarah, and how that manifests and how they deal with that on like almost a day-to-day way. And so to have Janie E and Diane linked here is just very interesting both, you know, how they were linked on a script level in a previous episode, but how they're linked through editing and through music here. Just to set up that contrast, I think this whole series is about Cooper and the different sides of his personality, however you read that, whether you think there was a split or these are just two different beings that nonetheless show different aspects of that character. I think women in his life particularly point to that fact. Janie and Diane, they're both strong women, they're both feisty but they also are both subordinated in this episode. You know, we're almost trained not to think about it with Janie E. It's just like, oh no, Cooper's back, the assertive alpha male, he's taking over. And meanwhile, we've watched her take care of him throughout this whole season. We'll get to this in the Vegas section, but I just think to put that right up against the Diane scene is not accidental and is extremely interesting. Diane is also a kind of a counterpoint to Cooper in this episode, where we have the two threads in the middle of the episode are Diane and Cooper. And in one case, you have this character coming back into it. He's all cheerful. He's ready to go, right going. He's got all these men helping him out and this family that he comforts and says goodbye to. And he marches off as they sit there wistfully. It's just almost this cartoonish vision of uh, masculine recovery, let's say because everything is so very gender-coded in this series. And then up against that, you have Diane recovering her memory and just struggling and all alone. Nobody's helping her. They're just sitting there watching. And she's trying to pull back this information and figure out what happened to her and what it means. And for her troubles, she's evaporated. She's taken away and she's 
she's sent to the red room and told you know you were manufactured for a purpose and all of that so to have these two contrasts i think is very telling and it reminds me a lot of something like Mulholland drive where you have these two different very different visions of storytelling and character development butting up against each other and of course the original twin peaks and firewalk with me these different versions of the story and part 16 slams those two versions together and puts them right up against each other and i think for all the talk about cooper's recovery it's almost more like the cooper's recovery diane's breakthrough episode like those two things together and then with audrey at the end i guess to be appropriate for the character putting a cherry on top of that and of course if diane is a counterpoint to cooper audrey is as well and I said before that the Out of Sand song, the Eddie Vedder song, feels like sort of indirectly appropriate for Cooper, but very directly appropriate for Audrey, where it's talking about the passage of time and you can never get it back. Cooper is jumping right back into it, like as if he could get it back. It's all there. I remember people speculating at the time, like, well, he's, he's kind of talking about Cooper and how the time has passed and uh, now he's older. He's lost all those years in between. But Cooper's not thinking about that in this episode. That's true maybe on some sort of, you know, subconscious level. But really, it's much more directly true of the female characters, particularly Audrey in this sequence. So I think that's another juxtaposition, another counterpoint to have and it feels like on some level Lynch, at least as an artist, is more allied with a Diane or an Audrey. And this is tricky because I think Lynch denies and, and other people have sort of denied this idea that the more troubling reality is the more real one. That, you know, the pain is more real than joy or something like that. But nonetheless, the way he presents the suburban life in Blue Velvet, the way he presents the first half of Mulholland Drive and the Betty stuff, and the way he presents Cooper in this episode, they all just feel, they intuitively feel like you're getting a kind of a purposefully shallow read of something. And maybe it's happy, maybe it's light, but it doesn't feel as deep. In Lynch, for the most part, unless it's mixed up with pain and suffering, as it is in like the straight story or the end of Inland Empire or the end of Firewalk With Me, the joyous moments always feel a little bit, I don't even know if I'd want to say the word hollow, but they always feel like they're coming short of the real phenomenon, whereas the painful moments feel like you're really breaking through there. And I think that's true in this episode. In the Mr. C storyline, we have Richard and the doppelganger driving down a dark road, and they reach a certain set of coordinates, something that uh, Mr. C has. He's got three coordinates, and two of them match. So this is one of the ones that match. He explains this to a bit to Richard, who doesn't really know who this is or what he's dealing with, but he's just following along because he saw this man's picture, um, you know, with his mother and knows that they're somehow, you know, maybe suspects that this is his father. Mr. C says he's 25 years his senior, and uh, that right there should be a sign that he's probably his father, although if you think about it, it doesn't actually make sense. Richard was born 25 years ago, but Cooper was older than 25 in the old series. So I think they just screwed up their numbers there, but it's supposed to be a little hint. As Richard follows this beeping, the device that he gives him to find the location, the coordinates, just this general vague Lynch technology and mechanism that he likes to use, it leads him up on top of a rock and he just gets electrocuted. He gets burnt alive and his shadow is, is cast over the whole valley, shaking and vibrating and screaming, and then it seems like his head pops off and his whole body just 
explodes and there's nothing left. And Mr. C is not all that flustered by this. Now he knows that those coordinates aren't real and he drives away. Did this have to be his son? That's something I've never really figured out. Could anybody have performed this function? I can't get away from the sense of not really having an idea what the point of Richard is in the story. It feels like they brought him in for one purpose. They couldn't do that purpose. And then they just sort of found things for him to do and then dispatched him. I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing this is probably how he died in the original screenplay. It's not contingent on Audrey in any way, so there's no reason that it would be different. One interesting thing about this opening sequence of this episode is you're seeing the two villains of the return side by side. Think about that. The the two primary villains have really been Richard and Mr. C. We've seen Mr. C's road trip where he's doing all these things, and even the people who are threatening Dougie Cooper or killing people in Vegas are all connected through Mr. C. And in Twin Peaks, Richard is been the primary villain you know you had chad as sort of a more comic antagonist but really i I think pretty much anywhere where there was trouble in twin peaks richard was most directly behind it the figure of red was kind of hanging there but we never got much on him it's richard's fingerprints all over anything and he's a very different type of evil than mr c he's extremely insecure he's messy doesn't do things right he's got the viciousness of mr c but not the discipline of him at all now on to i guess you could call him what's left of the dougie storyline now that dougie as a character doesn't quite exist anymore but the dougie cooper that we knew for the office storyline we have bush now visiting uh, dougie cooper in the hospital he gets a call from phil who says that the fbi has arrived at the office and is sort of poking around and they're going to head over there and check them out at the hospital Bushnell hears that strange tone he follows it out of the room when he comes back dougie as he knows him is sitting up in bed talking quite a bit and he's a little stunned he doesn't ask too many questions but he just goes along with it and it's like amazed that this is suddenly what his employee has turned into Uh, he's told to give him the gun and to call gordon cole so it's going to be a boss to boss call for the home life we see uh, janie e and sunny jim visiting cooper in the room talking quite a bit and uh, kind of holding his hand, and Janie takes Sonny to the bathroom at one point, Sonny Jim, and that's when Cooper will be revived. It's like something has to move them out of the room and Bush out of the room. For whatever reason, Cooper has to be alone when he wakes up. That's interesting. Why is that? Is it because he needs a moment with Mike? Probably, but like I said, with that whole dream interpretation, there's other places you could go with that. When they return to the room, they see Dougie Cooper is awake. They are also stunned, just like Bushnell. And Janie seems fairly impressed, as does Sonny Jim. He's all excited that his dad can drive now. He kind of orders them around. Okay, go go get the car ready. You know, very politely, but but firmly. And they they comply. They go. They get the car. They're driving to a casino. And I think she says something like, "You're not going to go gambling, are you? Now we're not going to gamble anymore, Dougie." And he says, Janie, don't worry about that. It's all very assertive and official. And when they arrive in the casino. They're kind of confused. Where are we going? What's going on? And then he turns and he kind of breaks up with his family. Like that's what this moment is. And it's interesting to to watch from the perspective of, you know, Lynch's actual uh, biography, his life. He has had four children with four different wives, all of whom he's, well, the last one he is still with, but the other three he left, you know, while the children were still young. This is not an unfamiliar scene for David Lynch to film. And there's a kind of a poignancy in it. And it feels like we're watching it, to a certain extent, more from Janie E. and Sonny Jim's perspective. I don't know that we're given a sense, really, of what Cooper's emotional stakes are in this. He seems very sympathetic, very kind, 
but determined about what he's going to do. And the funny thing about all this, I'm saying all of this, it's only from Cooper's point of view that we have confirmation that the, he is indeed leaving them. He has no reason to go back there. So for him, it is a goodbye. But the emotional sense of it being a goodbye comes from them, not from him. Like they're picking up on the cues he's giving them. And really all he's saying is, I've got to go off for a night. I'll be back tomorrow. He's always disappeared many times. I guess that's part of the fears is the return to the old Dougie's ways. But really, that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. It seems to be a specific understanding that this man is not quite who they thought he was. And uh, he's he's probably leaving them for good. Even though he lies to Sonny Jim, he says, I am your real dad, Sonny. And maybe, in a sense, he is. But, you know, not in the sense, not the, not in the sense his son is thinking of. It's also really an E.T. moment, this farewell. Which is funny, because I mentioned earlier how the early Dougie scenes are like E.T., where you have this kind of alien creature bumbling around the suburban house and the kid playing with it while the, the mother doesn't notice what's going on. And now you have, like, the end of E.T., this sad, bittersweet farewell, where, especially because it's a being that was totally dependent upon these hosts, and now suddenly it seems to have more power than them and almost be reaching down to them. So think of that in terms of E.T., where it's this this character who's lost he's almost treated sort of like an animal they found in the woods and they're dressing him up and they're playing games with him and he's dependent upon them for survival and then when his spaceship comes he's rescuing them he flies them in the air to escape the fbi which is ironic when you think about it i'm not sure there actually are fbi but there's some sort of government agents in twin peaks you have similar scenario where dougie seems to be pretty much dependent upon them other than that one scene of reaching out and protecting Janie e from uh, ike the spike which that sort of fits with E.T. occasionally helping Elliot out along the way, but mostly being helped by him and then saying goodbye. So that's just an interesting parallel that I picked up on in one way, and now it's interesting to see it come out on the other end with, a, with another kind of connection there. And so, of course, instead of flying off with an alien race, Cooper goes off with two sort of macho men mafiosos with their hearts of gold. This is what this episode is doing repeatedly. It's setting up a very sharp juxtaposition between this classical male patriarchal authority and these female characters who are more struggling and vulnerable and sort of nuanced in a way. And uh, that we'll have more to talk about that with the finale, for sure. For the assassination plot, that is something we get quite a bit of this episode. We see Hutch and Chantel staking out Dougie's house and watching as the FBI comes and goes, watching as the Mitchums arrive, and then a neighbor pulls up and gets into a, you can't even call it road rage, it's like driveway rage, basically. It's <laughs> just the front of his house. He says they're in his driveway, they say they're not, and he ends up shooting at them. And so they shoot back, or no, I'm sorry, they shoot him first. And then he starts shooting back, and he keeps shooting back. And when they try to drive away, he fires into the car and uh, and kills them. Hutch and Chantel are dead. We never saw him torture anyone. We never saw him get even close to Dougie. And uh, that's it for those two kind of lovable characters, I guess, lovable psychopaths. A few things I noticed in this sequence, some trivial. They're not eating Cheetos. It's some weird off-brand stuff, like, uh, you know, that the type of fake merchandise they make for movies sometimes or it's something real that i don't know of but it wasn't cheetos some other logo on the bag they also talk about somebody named sammy who passed away and uh you know Hutch says i owed him money chantel says i oh, said it's bother you yeah you know not that much funny little banter but it also people wonder does this have anything to do with sam in new york i'm gonna go out on a limb and say no finally the mitchums Let's deal with their part of the Las Vegas storyline. They arrive with Candy, Mandy, and Sandy, as always, at the hospital. 
and they later go to the house. So this is kind of their official meeting with Janie E and Sonny Jim, and they seem to make a good impression. They're just totally lovable characters at this point. That's why at the end of the episode we hear them say they have hearts of gold, and they're like, yeah, yeah, they do, forgetting like everything we've seen almost up to that point, uh, but they've just been fully converted into these kind of lovable stock characters. They also witnessed the shooting between Hutch and Chantel and this Zawaski character, the uh, accountant neighbor who shoots them. And they have a funny reaction where they're watching the van rolling through the street and this open fire and going, what the hell is going on in this neighborhood? And uh, one of them, I can't remember uh, which, which one says it. They say, well, people are under a lot of stress. Good point. They get a call after this uh, from Dougie saying, it's time to go to Spokane. And they just, yep, let's go. Come on, we're going to Spokane. Fuel up the jet. And they're just all ready to go, like ready to be his honchos at this point. Like he's rallied these people around him now, these loyal allies. But he did it as Dougie, not as Cooper. So it's interesting that now he's Cooper as the beneficiary of the Dougie goodwill, so to speak. And the Mitchums find out that he's an FBI agent they're a little off-put about this, a little off-put that they're heading to a sheriff's station. You know, what's going on here? Is this a sting operation? Never seems to really enter their their minds, but they are disconcerted. And he just reassures them, I know you guys have hearts of gold. I'm going to take care of your problems with the FBI. So he's basically telling these two lifelong criminals he's just going to look the other way at, uh, at all their illegal activities, including, like, beating the shit out of people and sending them, you know, threatening their lives and killing people. Uh, presumably they were going to kill him. Again, we just kind of go along with it. Yeah, they are lovable, these two. Candy confirms they do. They really do have hearts of gold. Uh, I don't think she says the hearts of gold part, but he does, and she affirms. For the search for Dougie's storyline, the FBI is uh, looking for Dougie all over the place. As Phil says, they're at the office. We see them actually arrive at his house and look around. And of course, as always, Headley is screaming at Wilson, and Wilson just has the most hilarious facial expressions like his reactions to this uh, this abuse is just hilarious and uh headley leaves wilson in charge of dougie's house staking it out and he witnesses a shooting and rushes out and arrests the shooter and that's the last we see of wilson we see headley pulling up at the hospital going in with his men right after dougie has left like he's just left he just missed him i think he pulls in as dougie pulls out basically Something like that. On to what I will call a new storyline within that story section. Cooper is back. Cooper wakes up in the hospital. Nobody's in the room at this moment. And he is full-on Cooper again. It's, it's no longer Dougie Cooper. He's sentient. He's very verbal. He's commanding. He knows what he wants. Has control of himself. Uh, he sees uh, Spirit Mike. Gets the ring from Mike and gives him a piece of hair to make another one. We'll talk about that in the Lodge Lore section. A doctor clears Cooper to leave as he's talking to Janie E and Sonny Jim and Bushnell and giving them all these orders. You go get the car. Here, you call my boss. And it's very much the old Cooper again. That confidence, the all-knowing quality, the authority. The one thing that's missing a little bit is he doesn't seem quite as lighthearted. He's very, he's got the official side of Cooper, but he's not quite uh, as cheerful in a way. You know, he's he's smiling and he's happy, but he's he's got business to attend to. And he's all, he's almost like a little bit of a caricature of the original Cooper and more in line with almost a comic book hero or something. Straight jawed, straight ahead. You know, he's, He's missing that quirkiness of Cooper, and I'm not sure why that is. That may just be a function of time and coming back. You know, Comic Lock has talked about it being difficult at first to get back into character. I think it works for what the episode's doing as well because we're getting such a heightened version of a particularly a certain heroic side of Cooper that uh, it has to be a little bit cartoonish in a way. 
he says goodbye to Sonny Jim and Janie E, and I think that scene has more to do with them than him. He also gets the Mitchums to drive him to uh, airports so they can fly out, I think, on their private plane to Spokane, Washington, and a uh, driving in a limo. And he explains who he is, and they talk to him, and he tells them they have hearts of gold. It's just, it's a very arch kind of exaggerated Cooper in a way where we're getting very much a specific side of him. And he was always a character who, within his very marketed, clear personality, had different shadings that could be brought to it. And Lynch himself has talked about this, where he said he could lose the character if he wasn't directed exactly right. Um, sometimes a little too much of, of Kale, you know, because he called him Kale, would, would slip into it, and it would be not quite as much Cooper as it needed to be, but he's got the Cooper in him too, and it's just an interesting statement and, and interesting to see how he uses him throughout this whole series, the different aspects of Cooper. Like, it's something that Lynch was always conscious of, even as, like, a production flaw, and he makes it, in a way, a narrative element, I think. Watching this again, it almost feels like Cooper waking up is, like, entering into a dream. Like, this is all Cooper's dream from this point on, because... It seems so preposterous, and there's the shot of Bushnell leaving the room, and then we just cut back to the Dougie Cooper lying in bed and then opening his eyes, and it, it feels like that kind of Lynchian dream within a dream or something. I don't know. It's a thought that occurred to me. I wouldn't make much of it in any literal terms, but poetically, I think that's about right. That's that's kind of how it feels. The Doctor, by the way, is uh, Louis, the great northern concierge. I'm not going to say it's the same character in World, but it's the same actress who has worked with Lynch several times and is friends with Laura Dern. So that's her way back into this universe. I remember at the time writing her character series in 2017, a few months before the show came back, and we were wondering, how the heck is Louie going to be in it, or is he just going to cast her as a different character? And yeah, apparently he cast her as a different character, but it's nice to see her in there for a moment. The big moment of this sequence is Cooper walking out the door, and Bushnell says, what about the FBI? Cooper turns around and he says, I am the FBI. It's this great moment. It's like a stand up and cheer moment. But again, feels so over the top to me that I can't quite imagine taking it completely at face value. But I, I seem to be very much the exception to that rule. And finally, once again, for the second time, the storyline that has disappeared uh, for more episodes of Absence is Jade and the key. The key that she sent uh, from Las Vegas, which is why we still discuss it in the story section, even though it arrived at the Great Northern. Last time we saw it, Ben was giving it to Frank. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow's episode will cover part 16 in the town, what's going on in Twin Peaks in this uh, sort of penultimate episode. There's technically one more before the finale, but 17 and 18 were aired together. So this is the second to last time we're really going to get into some of these subjects in Twin Peaks. 